I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. As of the date of this podcast, there have been about 87 million cases of COVID-19 worldwide and about 1.9 million deaths, with 20% of these in the United States. We have lost over 360,000 of our fellow citizens. Vaccines have been developed and are beginning to be distributed. But the time lag between the onset of the pandemic and the development and distribution of vaccines costs lives. How can we be better prepared for future pandemics? Someone who has been devoting serious consideration to this is my guest today, Michael Kramer. Michael was a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2019. The Nobel Committee cited his work on the use of field experiments to combat global poverty. And his research spans other important topics as well, such as debt burdens facing developing countries, the spread of AIDS, elephant poaching, and germane to today's discussion, creating incentive mechanisms to encourage the development of vaccines for use in developing countries. Michael, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Econofact Chats. Thanks, Michael. Congratulations on the Nobel Prize. Thank you. I hear that now you've moved to the University of Chicago. If you get the Nobel Prize at the University of Chicago, you get a parking space. Is that correct? I hadn't heard that, but that sounds good. You might want to try to take them up on it. Yeah. Okay. Michael, early in the pandemic, you were one of more than a dozen authors of an analysis that considered alternative approaches to procuring vaccines. And you argued for governments directly funding large manufacturing capacity and taking on most of the risk of the failure of particular attempts to come up with a vaccine. And then in exchange for this support, governments would have the right to buy doses of successful vaccines at little more than the cost of manufacturing them. You also advocated for maintaining some direct incentives for coming up with vaccines quickly. What are the advantages of this approach compared to what we have now? I think one thing to really motivated our analysis was starting out with the imperative of speed. You know, each month, COVID-19 kills about 200,000 people globally. And from an economic point of view, just the short-run GDP losses are about $500 billion every month. The full losses are likely much larger. You know, the health costs, the cost of disruption of education. Uh, David Cutler and Larry Summers estimate $890 billion as the monthly U.S. cost of the pandemic. Now, the normal timeline for vaccines takes typically three to four years from initial testing to commercial use and large-scale capacity installation. And that large-scale capacity installation comes only after the vaccine trials are completed. But that means there's a delay between the vaccine being approved and delivered at scale. So multiple governments and international organizations invested in advance 
So manufacturing capacity could be built in parallel with the testing process. And so production could begin earlier. And that's the, the approach that we advocated. And I think that early government investment makes sense because the value of, to society of making these investments early so we can get the vaccine earlier is huge. Now, there's still substantial value for firms, but it's smaller. So they may not invest enough. They may not start the construction of the factories early enough, and they may not build large enough factories. So this is the standard issue in economics, what we economists call externalities, that the advantage to the society at large is greater than the advantage to those who actually engage in an activity. And in this case, the advantage to society is greater than the advantage to the manufacturers and developers of vaccines. What are some reasons that the private value of a vaccine might be lower than the social value? So you're right. The vaccines are a classic case of an externality. And the classic argument is epidemiological externalities. If I get vaccinated, I'm not just protecting myself. I'm also helping protect other people around me. But if you think about how much I'm willing to pay for a vaccine, that might not reflect the second generation of benefits or the third generation or the fourth generation and so on. Now, because of that, in most countries, the main purchasers of vaccines are not individuals, but rather governments purchase on behalf of their citizenry. In this case, in this pandemic case, there's another factor at play, which is there are social constraints on pricing, either ethical constraints from the point of view of the pharmaceutical manufacturer or you know, political constraints or the implicit threat of those constraints. And I don't want to say that's a bad thing. There, you know, There's a legitimate different political points of view on what vaccine prices should be. And maybe we do need regulation in the, in the midst of a pandemic. But if we are in a situation where there are either ethical or political limits on pricing, then it may not be in the commercial interest of firms to invest as much in an untested vaccine as it is in the overall social interest, given the massive human toll on human lives and the massive economic cost every month that the vaccine goes on. Oh, sorry, so, no, the vaccine goes on. The, the, right, pandemic, the pandemic goes, goes on. on. Right. Yeah. Hopefully the vaccine goes on. Yeah. Well, there are two issues. One is that the vaccine might not work out. It's a risky endeavor to try to do it. And the other is once it's done, you just can't, you know, offer uh, or you can't offer the vaccine at a ridiculous or what people would see as a ridiculous price. Can you put a dollar value on the distinction between the social costs and the private costs of vaccines? Yeah, th these numbers will be very rough, of course, but we estimate that advancing capacity installation uh, for vaccine courses so that they're available now rather than six months later is worth about $1,000 per course of vaccine. So, you know, a lot, a huge amount. And if you compare that to the vaccine prices, you know, there are different prices for different vaccines, but the deals announced involve prices ranging from $6 per course of vaccination to $40 per course. So if you compare that to the $1,000 of social benefits, um, you can see that's a you know, really a 40-fold or even a 300-fold gap. So yes, the firms will install capacity, but not as much capacity as society really needs, unless you try to specifically write contracts that encourage them to, to install more capacity. 
So as you were saying, this is like this classic case of, of an externality. And you're mentioning these contracts. It might be a way to get around that. What would the contracts look like, Michael, in order to realize the benefits that you're outlining? So I think the – let me make an analogy for anybody who's ever hired a contractor to work on their house. You could write a contract that just specifies the work to be done. Or in the case of a vaccine, you could write a contract to say, hey, we want to buy 300 million doses for the U.S. The problem is a dose six months later is not as valuable as a dose now. So society really cares about speed. And just like if you write a contract for somebody to do work on your house and you don't specify the timeline, you know, they may come, there may be various delays that you're subject to. The same sort of problem can arise with vaccines. It's going to be from a purely commercial point of view. I don't want to cast aspersions on the vaccine developers. They're working very hard. But or from on purely, contractors. Or on contractors for that matter. But from the, you know, from a purely commercial point of view, there are going to be things that may cause delays. It may be very expensive to, to get around those problems. If they build a slightly smaller facility and it just takes them longer to produce, that's going to be cheaper for them than building a larger facility and getting all the production done quickly. So you have to specify that in the contract or you have to do, say, penalties for being late or bonuses for being fast. Now, the problem with the penalties and bonuses when it's worth $1,000 to society to get it a bit faster, well, you can't put a $1,000 bonus on. That would be a lot of risk for the government. You can't put a $1,000 penalty on because that would be too much risk for the company, especially because there are all sorts of things that are outside anybody's control that affect the speed. You know, the, it, the length of time it takes to do the trial depends on how, the rate at which people, trial subjects are being infected. There could be adverse events. That means that the regulatory agencies pause the trial. So in these circumstances, we argue that it makes sense to have the manufacturing capacity to be part of the contract because that is something, obviously, that can be subject to external factors as well. But it's it's more under the control of the vaccine manufacturer. So you could, could have the contract say, look, we want you to start building the capacity on such and such a date. We want you to have it done by this date. We want this much annual capacity. That should be part of the contract. It's still going to be very hard to write a great contract, but those should be part of the contract. And I think that's you know, one of the fundamental insights of this group of economists who worked on trying to analyze these issues. So it's kind and, of a multifaceted contract in that way. It's not just the doses, but the speed and the capacity figures in and these other things as well. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So paying for capacity installation transfers the risk from the pharmaceutical companies to the government or the international organizations if they're the ones uh, making the contract. So what's the benefit of this for the government and ultimately for the citizenry of a country? Why not just offer to buy the vaccine at a higher price? So in general, there are two ways to support pharmaceutical research. And, you know, in the United States, we use both of them. One is upfront or what we sometimes called push funding. That goes to the to fund the research independent of the success of the research or not. So if the National Institutes of Health makes a grant to you know, researchers at a university, they pay for that. And if the research succeeds, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But the researcher gets paid either way. The other approach is what we call PAW, which is payments that you only get if you succeed. And you know, the, if you think about a pharmaceutical company that makes 
produces a drug, you know, they're investing a lot in the R&D. If they succeed, they get a lot of money. If they fail, well, they don't have a product to sell. And in general, we think that that mix is appropriate. It makes sense to have both push funding and pull funding. Either alone, you know, aren't going to be as effective, but the appropriate mix varies with the situation. And one program that I'd been involved in earlier was something called an advanced market commitment. And that was a commitment that if a vaccine developer comes up with a vaccine that society needs where there's not too much of a market, here we were thinking of something like a malaria vaccine, that governments would commit in advance that if a vaccine came that met certain specifications, they would help finance the the cost of it. So that was a Paul contract. In this case, I'd be happy to discuss why, we think that there should actually be a pretty big push component. So it's important to both have the incentive for development and to reward success. And as you mentioned, in this case, doing just one or the other wouldn't do the job nearly as well. Yeah. And let me explain why we think that just relying on a reward for a successful vaccine wouldn't have been appropriate, would have been more expensive in this context. It's somewhat a somewhat subtle argument. Um, this is a context where, from a social point of view, we want lots of shots on goal. There are a lot of different vaccine developers out there. If you think from the standpoint of March, or we didn't know which one would succeed. Turns out we got lucky, and a lot of them seem to be succeeding, but we didn't know that back then. If you look historically, most vaccine efforts don't succeed. So from a social point of view, it's worth getting lots of shots on goal, getting lots of candidates in development, and actually building the factories in advance for lots of different vaccine candidates. Now, those, those candidates, we as the, the government, as a purchaser, it can make guesses, but it doesn't know what the probability of success is for each. The vaccine manufacturers have some thought, presumably themselves, about some estimate of the chance of success. If you just said, we're going to pay a certain amount for a successful vaccine, then if you want to pull in a lot of different companies, you're going to have to offer a lot to motivate not just the ones that are really confident, but the ones that think they have a realistic shot, but not that big a shot. And that becomes pretty expensive because if you're trying to pay enough to build it, to bring in those companies, you're actually paying more than you need to for the companies that are more confident of success. If you only wanted to bring in the companies that were really, really confident, then perhaps going with a pull approach, primarily pull approach, would have been okay. But if you want to bring in a lot of different companies, and in a case like this, particularly if we're thinking about the cost of manufacturing, that's stuff that you know the government doesn't know those costs perfectly, but they can ask for the receipts. You need this many bioreactors. You need this many glass vials. You need to build a facility. You know, there's room for some cost inflation there, but it's limited. So I think primarily paying through upfront payments makes sense. Of course, you still want some reward for speed, some other things. So, so some pull component makes sense, but probably the contract should be mostly upfront payments. So, Michael, what would the optimal level of investment have looked like in, say, June, July, August of this year? Right. So we tried to do this group of economists that I'm working, you know, informally. We tried to do an analysis of that. And obviously, there are a lot of assumptions that go into it. We made some assumptions about the cost of the epidemic, taking those from some of the sources I cited earlier, IMF, World Bank, U.S. government sources. We 
got historical data on the chance of success for different vaccine candidates. We assumed that investing early would accelerate the development of vaccines by three months. If you wait to, to build the capacity till after testing, we assume you'd lose three months. We also assumed that there was some chance something else would come along and, and address, you know, really dramatically cut the toll of the epidemic. And we actually assumed the cost, we cut the cost of the epidemic in 50, by 50%. Turned out that didn't happen. But despite doing all those things, you know, we, we, we found that high-income countries would invest $150 per person, say. One thing to note is $150 per person, multiply that times the U.S. population. That sounds like a lot of money until you consider the cost of the epidemic, which is vastly more than this. So this is a lot more than we typically spend on, on vaccines, but it's a lot less than the cost of the epidemic. And we, we called for enough capacity that if we had two successful candidates, we would have had 137 million courses per month, and that would have allowed us to finish vaccination by March. Now, that would have meant installing some capacity, which wouldn't have, you know, some candidates that wouldn't have succeeded, but it would have been worth it. You know, when we're estimating this $800 billion cost to the U.S. economy per month. So you know, we invested, but not enough. Yeah. So, I mean, if you did the quick math, and I'm not sure I'm doing this right, but it's like, what, $50 billion if it's $150 per person. Is that right? And that's like, you know, not close to the, the cost that you were citing earlier on. Yeah. So compared to what actually happened, one thing that's striking that actually happened is the vaccine was developed relatively quickly. I guess there are new technologies that are allowing that. So compared to like what you and your colleagues were um, looking at, what actually happened you know, with that as a kind of benchmark? So we had assumed fairly low probabilities of success for each candidate and pretty modest correlations. Uh, between the chance of success. And what actually happened seems to have been, we got lucky, a bunch of different candidates succeeded. You know, who knows whether we put, made the right assumptions. I think we would have been better off if we had invested more, as we suggested. But I think the point isn't, you know, did we get it right or not? I think the point is, if you think about this from the perspective of a future pandemic, it's worth doing this type of exercise. And I think what will come out of it is that we need to be prepared to make very large investments in building up the capacity in advance. I think there's some other lessons, happy to get into them later, about future pandemics. But let me just say, even though I think there are also some lessons from our analysis for today's, uh, for, you know, for the epidemic that we're in right now. So it's, you know, hopefully a situation now where once burned, twice shy, where people are going to be more cognizant of we need a medical defense as in the same way we need a military defense because we can be ravaged by it. So I'm hoping that the ideas that you and your colleagues have come up with um, are things that the new administration and new Congress will take very seriously. If you were to testify on Capitol Hill, Senator or, or uh, Representative were to ask you, you know, what are the two or three things that we learned and what are the two or three things that you would advocate our government do moving forward? Because it's very likely we're going to face more pandemics. What would you say to them? Let me start with today's pandemic. There's still enormous gains today to investing in a vaccine. You know, we would have been better off if we built more capacity, even more capacity earlier. But 
even though there are production lags, even though if we start construction now, there might be a three-month lag or even six-month lag, we estimate that installing more capacity now would have benefits of hundreds of dollars per annual course. Capacity for manufacturing or development of even new vaccines? For capacity of manufacturing of the vaccines that we have. So I think it would make sense, you know, and I'm here, I'm thinking partly from a global perspective. You know, the U.S. actually was pretty good relative to other countries in, in getting a lot of orders in early and getting a lot of you know, capacity in place. But from a global perspective, I think it would make sense to reach out to all the companies and say, hey, give us a bid to install more capacity. And then we would see who can make realistic proposals and shows that they actually have the capacity. And tell us in that bid how quickly you could get the capacity together, how much you would make. And obviously, you know, we have the information on the different efficacy of the different vaccines. And let's see if somebody could get more capacity online and you know, ideally in three months, but even in six months, it would still be enormously valuable to the world. So that's one recommendation. And this would yeah. be a multifaceted contract like you're talking about. It's not even, not just quantity, but speed and other issues, I guess, having to do with the delivery and the distribution. Exactly. I think what would make sense is to sort of have a request for proposals and have the companies put forth the proposals of what they think they could do. And then you could order from one. You could say, hey, we think four of these bids look pretty good and we'll order from all four. But to start that process now, we should be doing that right away. A second thing is we should try to get more out of the capacity that we have. And look, some of this is obviously the scientists, the doctors are going to have to make the, the calls on this. But I think the standard approach that is typically used in the industry and that the regulators use, which makes complete sense in normal circumstances, is to think about maximizing the benefit to the person who gets the vaccine in their arm. So you choose the dosage, for example, you're trading off higher dosage might be more efficacious, but it might also cause side effects. Where do you draw the line? It's very subjective, but that's what you think about when you're trying to choose the right dosage. And obviously, with these companies, they didn't know. It's a brand new vaccine. They made some guess. They made their best guess, and they tested it at that. Well, it's a very different situation in the middle of a pandemic than it is normally. In the middle of a pandemic, if you can save any of that vaccine and use that for somebody else, you're contributing to the faster end of the epidemic. And you're contributing, to the, obviously, to the health of whoever gets that vaccine, and to the health of everybody else who benefits from the lower level of, of transmission in society. So you're yeah. advocating maybe you know a wider distribution of smaller doses in order to prevent the spread more widely? Is that what you're pointing to? I think that's something to consider. Obviously, the scientists have to make the, the decision, but there are multiple ways you could do this. So, And in fact, the regulators are around the world are, are considering things like this. So let me start off with sort of a... One example, which I heard just today, the Biden administration announced they're going to change the policy on this. So I believe when the, the original way that Operation Warp Speed was working was they reserved one dose sort of in, in storage so they would have the second dose available when they sent out the first dose, just in case there was some disruption to supply to make sure that somebody would get that second dose. Well, Obviously, if you're doing that, you're not going to be able to get the doses out to as many people as you would otherwise. There's some level of risk. Sure, if you say we're just going to use, you know, on Monday we have 1 million doses, we're going to vaccinate 1 million people. You know, you if there's a supply disruption, maybe three weeks from now, you, it's, you're late with somebody on the second dose. 
But if you can vaccinate more people quickly, that's a worth a risk that the Biden administration has just announced they're willing to take. Even the first dose is, is efficacious. Even the first dose is efficacious. Yeah. You know, there are other things that you could think about. And another approach would be to say, well, let's try a slightly smaller dose. If you, if you went with a dose that's 20% smaller, you could vaccinate 20% more people. And you know, that's something that not I don't think it was 20%, but there was actual uncertainty over what the right dose is. It's not like we know for sure what the right dose is. You could also just spread out the doses more. So instead of giving them three weeks apart, give them three months apart. I believe the UK is, is uh, just decided that it was going to try that approach. Now, look, any time that you do something like that, you obviously have to watch. Is that going to cause so much lower efficacy that society as a whole is worse off. But that's something you can monitor. You can check. So let's say that instead of giving them three weeks apart, you give them three months apart. So there's reason to think that that might actually be a better approach. But you can monitor. And if you start seeing, hey, the efficacy is falling off and a lot of people are getting infected after two months, well, then you can reverse the policy. But you at least get a chance to try this out and the option of the policy. Again, economists shouldn't be making these calls. This is something that epidemiologists and, and doctors have to be making the decisions on. But these types of policies should be considered, and I think increasingly they are being considered. Yeah, it's important to point out, you know, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, you have to be creative. And as you mentioned, what you would do in normal times, you know, before a flu season, say, is very different from when you have a raging pandemic that seems to be getting worse. So, Michael, I want to thank you very much for the time that you've taken to speak with me today about this most vital issue. And thank you also for you know, your work with others on trying to address this and bring some good economic reasoning to this really important problem. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Wonderful to talk. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.